Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Well, good morning again, and welcome to Redeemer. Uh, My name is Jason Myers, and it is a joy uh, and honor to be here today to share uh, part of Luke's gospel with us this morning, and we're glad that you are here uh, today as well. Uh, As you can see on the screen, uh, we are currently in a series called uh, The Missio Dei, where we are looking at the mission of God that runs through the scriptures, but we're focusing in particular on uh, the Luke uh, portions of our lectionary readings as you probably have noticed for the last couple of weeks. And we're now uh, in week three of the series. Uh, and today we're going to be looking at that passage that we just read, Luke's famous sermon uh, on, on the plane. Uh, I want to begin talking about mission statements, which is one of my least favorite things to, to talk about. Um, but we're all familiar with them. Maybe you've participated uh, in an exercise at your business, at your school, um, or even part of a church community, because almost every church business organization Uh, has one of these, right? A mission statement that begins to define the values of the organization. Uh, It sets out those things that ought to guide uh, its decision-making, the things that make that community uh, unique, what makes them different from every other company, business, church. And so if you're part of that company or school or or, uh, business um, or church, uh, those things are meant to be instilled and kind of passed down through the generations. It's stating what the company finds to be valuable and what they want to be known for. And so the mission and values form a people into an identifiable group. And one of the best ways to see this is to look at sports teams. Sports teams, uh, if you are an alumni of a particular university or college, you have been instilled right, with a particular set of virtues, a particular set of values, um, One of those may be faithfulness because your team stinks and you have supported them for like, you know, the last 20 years if you're rooting for the Bengals today, right? Um, I do know a little bit about sports. Um, But you are meant to embody that wherever you go. So they go, oh yeah, that person went to here. That person is part of that community. Um, Those values define a community. And what we're going to be looking at in Luke today is somewhat similar. Jesus is setting out for his disciples what they are going to be known for. And so if you haven't been here for the past two weeks, that's totally okay. We've looked at two important passages that have preceded uh, this one. One's in Luke 4, one's in Luke 5, and today we're in Luke 6. You might be picking up a pattern here, right? Guess where we're going to be next week, Um, Luke 7. Um, But I don't want us to miss what's been happening in Luke's gospel. Back in chapter 4, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we heard Jesus preach a sermon uh, in his hometown of Nazareth where Jesus defines his own mission, what he's doing. It's on the screen. He says this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, Jesus is God's Spirit-anointed servant to bring good news to the poor, the oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the mission that Jesus is on in his life. Put another way, these are the things that Jesus has come to do in bringing about the good news, the gospel uh, that he announces. Jesus' gospel is good news 
for the poor and the oppressed. It's central to his vision for what he sees himself doing. What is central to the way we see our life as a community? What is central to how we see God's salvation working out in this world? If it's not Jesus' gospel, the one that he proclaims here in Luke 4, we're proclaiming something else, similar to what Paul says in our First Corinthians passage. Uh, so that's Luke 4. Jesus defines, here's what I'm here for, here's what I'm about to do as I bring God's kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven. It's only after Jesus has defined and clarified who he is and his mission that we then get last week's passage uh, that Father Dan preached on. And that is the calling of the disciples. This is that famous story of that fishing scene where they are catching literal boatloads of fish, right? Not metaphorical. And Jesus calling Peter and the disciples to come follow him and become fishers of people. Don't miss what Luke is doing. These stories are in order for a reason. Luke doesn't want us to miss the connection that the disciples are being called to follow Jesus in the mission as Jesus, as God's anointed servant. The order of these stories is really, really important for us to grasp. Luke 4 comes before Luke for a reason, and it's not mathematics or chronology, right? There's something theological here. Luke is saying that the disciples have enlisted with Jesus in his mission of good news to the poor, the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The disciples don't define the mission. Jesus does. He did that in Luke 4 and then says, okay, do you want to come follow me in what I'm doing? You see, the disciples don't sit down and figure out what they want to be and do. Jesus has already done that. He's defined that for them. I've said this a few times preaching here at Redeemer, and I am, I'm borrowing it from another pastor friend, but we don't follow Jesus to get where we're going. We follow Jesus to get where he's going. And in Luke 4, he's told us where he's going, to the poor, the oppressed, and those who are captive. Luke doesn't want us to miss this either. Jesus is defining this for us as disciples. The call of the disciples is our call as Jesus' disciples too. What's true for them is, is true for us. Jesus, we follow Jesus in his mission, in his ministry, not our own. And so here's the thing. We all have missions that we're on. We all have values that kind of or, orient and, and motivate us uh, in life. And Luke is trying to get us to grasp the vision uh, that Jesus has here. Who are we following? Luke might ask us as disciples. Is it the Jesus that we meet in Luke 4 or someone else? And that's going to bring us to today's passage in Luke chapter 6. We got Luke 4, Jesus' mission. Luke 5, his disciples are called into that mission. And now in Luke 6, we get this famous Sermon on the Plain where Jesus teaches his disciples. Jesus is going to teach his disciples about life in God's kingdom mission. What are going to be the values and the priorities that shape their time together? And Jesus begins with a list of what we have come to call the Beatitudes. We read them here this morning. Now, I think the term Beatitude is one of those terms that maybe we've thrown around before, maybe you've thrown it around, and we kind of nod our heads and we're like, yeah, beatitude. You get that, right? Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's like a really odd word. Like, it's, like, what I mean by that is, like, it's not a term you probably use every day. 
You're not sitting at your desk and like, man, I really got to work on my beatitude today. This is just, you know, I mean, I'm feeling really crummy. Um, if you have been using this word, congratulations. Um, but I, I have not, and, and I teach the Bible for a living. Um, it's not a, a frequent vocabulary term. Um, so I think we need to define it a little bit because we can take it for, for granted. Um, and it's because it's got that word attitude in it that it can kind of mislead us. Because you know how we learn words? Like you find a word that you know and you kind of extrapolate from there. Uh, in this case, that's actually not helpful <laughs> because attitude doesn't really have much to do with this at all. In fact, this word is less about how you feel and more about how you view the world and even our own lives in it. A beatitude is what shapes your life. It's what orients you in a particular perspective. What do I mean? Well, it's, it's helpful to know where Jesus got some of this material from. Jesus is a really creative and genius teacher, and it's why we are drawn to his words thousands of years later. But like any good teacher, we are formed by what we read. We were formed by what we spend our time consuming. And Jesus knew the Old Testament really, really well. What I mean by this is he had spent his child years and young adult years hearing it read in the synagogue. And the words of scripture made a deep and abiding impact on him. So that when Jesus thought and when Jesus taught, he spoke in the words of the Old Testament. And so when Jesus teaches, it shouldn't surprise us that much of what he says is rooted somewhere in the Old Testament. That is, in the stories of Genesis and Exodus, the Psalms and the prophets. This is what animates Jesus' teaching. And this brings us to a really interesting point, because when we think about the Beatitudes, we tend to think of those as like a New Testament thing. But there's an Old Testament counterpart to this. In fact, we heard it read this morning. In our psalm reading, did you catch the first line? Blessed is the one who. Same thing as Jesus is doing. Blessed are the, and fill in a group. Uh, here in Psalm 1, we get the same type language, a beatitude. Who is the person that receives God's blessing? Well, from Psalm 1, it's a wisdom psalm, and it's the person who lives according to God's design is under his blessing. God's way of life is deemed as the blessed life. And Psalm 1 is an invitation to you and I as the reader to enter into God's way of life, his way of living in the world, and find blessing under his guidance. So Psalm 1 is a psalm that helps us to contemplate our life in the world from God's vantage point. It's a person who delights in God's way of life. And the wisdom psalm here is one um, that gives us a clue here into Luke 6, where Jesus is going to chart out a very different way of living. So don't forget this beatitude uh, here in Psalm 1. But there's one more passage I think we need to just kind of take a quick peek at. And it comes from a passage we've actually already seen, if we want to understand what Jesus is doing. And it's Isaiah 61. Now, if you're going, I don't know Isaiah 61. You do. We've heard it read. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Isaiah 61. We're going to be there for a minute. But back in Luke 4, this is the text that Jesus preached from. That whole spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's Isaiah 61 uh, in the first kind of three or four verses. So we've heard that Isaiah text even if we didn't know it. And back in Luke 4, this is how Jesus defined his mission. 
And so when Jesus thinks about his kingdom mission, he also thinks of Isaiah 61. It's not just who he is, it's what he's come to do. I have some passages on the screen. This is Isaiah verse 61, verses 2 and 3. And notice the themes of Isaiah. And let me know if you've heard these anywhere before. So right after the section Jesus preaches from, we get this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Notice the themes of reversal in, in Isaiah's passage. The mourning will have joy. Things are changing. People who are mourning will have joy and laughter. That sounds really familiar. It's not done, though. Let's, let's keep reading a little bit. A few more verses on the screen. This is verses 8 and 9. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among all the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge them that they are a people the Lord has, wait for the word, blessed. Isaiah is also interested in the group in whom God's blessing will fall on. But notice something with me about the passage in Isaiah. I'm going to get a little nerdy here a little bit and talk about grammar, everyone's favorite, at least second favorite subject, or least favorite. Um, everything in Isaiah here in this section is about the future. All those verbs there are the future tense. Notice these are the things that God will do one day, Isaiah says. Isaiah is looking forward to a day when God will return and his kingdom will come and fortunes will be reversed. Isaiah is saying there's coming a day when God is going to come back and things are going to be turned upside down. So what is Jesus doing here in Luke 6 and back in Luke 4? He's saying that the day that Isaiah longed for and looked forward to, that is the day when Yahweh's kingdom would come, would be a day of reversals. And Jesus says that is happening now through him and his mission. So with Psalm 1 and Isaiah 61 in mind, let's go back to those Beatitudes and put some pieces to, together. What is a Beatitude? What is this term? I define it as this way, God's wise way of human living now, according to God's coming kingdom. God's wise way of living now in light of God's coming kingdom. Or put another way, living what is true now what will be true someday? And getting that informed from Jesus here. What Jesus is doing in this section is he is actually revaluing the world in front of his disciples to a world much like ours that values wealth, self-sufficiency, and happiness. Jesus offers an alternative way of looking and living in the world. It's as if Jesus is saying, if you measure your life and value your life in God's approval, by your wealth, by your own strength, or by your joy. And if you likewise render a judgment on those who are poor, hungry, and mourning, then that self-assurance will be questioned by God's coming kingdom. Because he's going to upend 
all of those categories and all of those ways of valuing the world. We would say, okay, that's the blessed life. Jesus comes and says, God values something entirely, entirely differently. And so live in light of God's coming kingdom. But, but wait a minute, let's ask a question here. How can Jesus say that the poor, the sorrowful, and the hungry are blessed now? Blessed are you. How can he say that? That seems at, at first glance a little, a little callous, a little um, insensitive. I think Jesus can say this, that they are blessed, because as we look through the Gospels, he is with them. Jesus is with them. And God's presence with them is his blessing of them. And Jesus says the future is theirs. Think about it. As you look through the Gospels, if you haven't done this, I'd encourage you to read through Luke. It's not terribly long. The groups that are mentioned in the Beatitudes are the groups that Jesus spends time with in the Gospels. Jesus surrounds himself with the poor, not with the wealthy. He surrounds himself with the hungry, not with the filled. He surrounds himself with the sorrowful in the morning, either because of sickness, disease, or death. He's not around a lot of happy people all the time. In fact, the rich, the filled, and the happy often have a lot of bad run-ins with Jesus in the Gospels. They get angry at him. They get offended at him. And it's eventually these groups that seek his death in the Gospels. So why does Jesus have these beatitudes? Well, how can he say that they're blessed? And how is the good news of Jesus changing these things? Look at Luke 6.20. Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God belongs to you. As I mentioned earlier, at first glance, this can seem rather insensitive if we were to go around saying and doing this. What blessing might there be in poverty? What we might not know is that most people in the ancient world were poor. Historians put it at roughly 60 or 70% of the Roman Empire had just enough food to get to the end of the week and, and no more. There was no planning for vacations. There was no second homes. There was no thinking about the future. It was, where's my food coming from? And if there's a famine or a war, we're going to have some problems here really, really quickly. And so most of the ancient world uh, was in this group. And so I don't think Jesus is ide idealizing it. I don't think he's trying to put a rosy picture on it. In fact, from what we know about Jesus, this is probably the life that he knew and lived. From what we can tell in the Gospels, Jesus is poor. This is the person who says the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. These are the people that Jesus grew up with. The grumbling stomachs he probably heard as a young child. The complaints you might have heard from those around him about there just not being enough to go around. And should it surprise us then, as Jesus lived this, and as he read through the Old Testament and saw God's concern, that Jesus would be concerned with this as well. As you look through Luke's gospel, you'll find something interesting on in the terms of blessing to the poor. How can Jesus say this? How does it happen? Well, Jesus meets some people in the gospel who are wealthy, and I mentioned those bad run-ins with them. Maybe you remember some of them, because when he meets the wealthy in his gospel, he gives them a startling word. Sell all you have and give your possessions to the poor. In fact, later on today, if you have time, take a look at Luke 19. Jesus meets a guy named Zacchaeus, short guy, 
Maybe you've heard of him. Um, and he says, Zacchaeus says in that story that he's already given half of his possessions to the poor on meeting Jesus. You see, meeting Jesus radically changes the rich and the wealthy in the story to be radically generous to those around them. This is all part of God's kingdom mission. This is how that blessing gets worked out. Uh, what about the hungry? How can Jesus say in Luke 6, 21, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. It's here where I want to remind us of what a beatitude is again. Remember, it's God's wise way of living now in light of God's coming kingdom. Essentially, Jesus is saying in God's coming kingdom, there will be no hungry people. Everything will be provided for. But notice Jesus doesn't take that belief and then say, well, just wait. Food is coming. It'll be here soon or in the life to come. No, what does Jesus do? Look again at the Gospels. Jesus is going around and giving out food to people so that in the present time, they can live in light of God's coming reality. They can see the food there as a sign of what is to come. Uh, what about leap, weeping and laughing? Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. What does God's wise way of living now look like in light of the kingdom for Jesus? Again, look at what Jesus does in the Gospels. It looks like going around and offering healing to those who are brokenhearted, to those who have diseases, and raising people from the dead. Jesus says, this is a sign of the kingdom among you. That reversal is happening in real time with Jesus. They're mourning those who are sick, those whose um, loved ones have died. Their mourning is turned into joy by the presence of Jesus, just as Isaiah prophesied it would be in God's kingdom. And maybe if we take a pause here, maybe that's where you're at this morning. I don't know. Maybe you've been experiencing sorrow or mourning or some sort of disappointment. We've all just walked through a lot of death in the last 18 to 24 months. Maybe you've lost a loved one or a friend to just a disease that we've had, like cancer, or maybe it was COVID. Maybe someone you've counted on has walked out on you, whether that was a friend or a loved one or a spouse. Maybe the hurt happened way before the pandemic, and the pandemic just made it utterly worse. You're like, trust me, my problems predate um, whatever happened. Friends, brothers and sisters, can you know that in this morning, know that Jesus is with you. These are the people to whom Jesus wants to surround himself. Jesus wants to be with you. That sorrowfulness, that, that mourning doesn't drive him away. It actually draws him near to you. And as Dan said last week, and as we read in the First Corinthians passage today, the resurrection changes everything. Our sorrow, the poverty in the world, the hunger around us will not always be. This is not the way of God. God is resurrecting everything, and his kingdom is coming. And Jesus and the Gospels are, are orienting us to begin living that out now in light of what is true. All right, you might be sitting here and thinking, okay, Gospels, Jesus, living out the kingdom, that checks out. I can see how you got there. Yes, I'm being very generous with my sermon. Thank you. Um, I can see how you got there, but what about now? Like now, now, like Greensboro in 2022 now. 
Because you might say, I, I get all that, and that makes sense in like gospel world, but Jesus isn't physically present with us this week, right? He's not, he's, he's present with us, but he won't be walking down Elm Street, right? Breaking the bread and handing it out. Here's come some good news. Remember where we started our sermon. I know it's been a while. Jesus has his mission declared in Luke 4. He calls his disciples in Luke 5. He teaches them in Luke 6. And then for just the next couple chapters, the disciples are just going to be with Jesus. They're going to watch him do what he does. They're going to listen to him teach. They're going to see him heal. But then in Luke 9, Jesus is going to do something radical. He is going to send his disciples out to go teach and do the same things that he was doing, to heal and to teach about God's coming kingdom. So notice the pattern. Meet Jesus, follow Jesus, learn from Jesus, be with Jesus, sent out by Jesus. Repeat that one more time. Meet Jesus, follow Jesus, learn from Jesus, be with Jesus, sent out by Jesus. That's the pattern that we see in the Gospels. And some of us really like the first parts, the meeting, the following, the learning, the being. And then we come to the sent out and we go, okay, that's for those people. Not in Luke's world, not in Jesus's world. We are sent out in the same kingdom mission that Jesus sent his disciples out on. If you have chosen to follow Jesus, you have chosen the mission of Jesus. Jesus gives that mission to you and says, go and be my disciples. In fact, we actually say this each week in our prayer at the end of the service. Have you, do you remember this line? We say each week, now, Father, send us out to do the work you have given us to do, right? That work there is a defined term. It's what we see Jesus doing in the gospel. So no matter if you are a nurse a teacher, a doctor, a stay-at-home parent, a grandparent, retired, in all of those places and spaces. This is what God's work is to do, to be done through you as a spirit-empowered witness to the kingdom that is coming. So as you heal and take care of others, as you love other people, as you work diligently uh, in your vocation, this is the work that God has to do. How do I get God's kingdom to be seen? in these places and in these spaces. Jesus' mission is in and through the church. That's the other reason why I think Jesus can say, blessed are in those groups. Because he's not just saying, I'm going to do something and then leave, and then like thousands of years later, we're going to fix everything and it's all going to be right. He's saying, no, 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 I'm setting up a community to be and to do the things that I did and to extend that out as a sign of my mission and of God's kingdom. We actually see this Later on in Luke's second part of the story in the book of Acts, what do we see in Acts 2 and 4 with the early Jesus community being radically generous to those around them so that no one has need? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You see, in Acts 2 and 4, they're being radically generous. In Acts 5, they're giving out free food to widows who are starving in Jerusalem. Why are they doing this? They didn't sit down and said, okay, what's our, what's our game plan now that Jesus is gone? They said, now that he's been ascended, they said, we are going to continue the kingdom mission that Jesus gave us. 
by doing those very same things wherever we are scattered. It's the kingdom mission that Jesus gives us too. We are not exempt from that. Um, I want to end with this. As we think about the Beatitudes and we think about why they're important, they should form us to be a people like Jesus. That our concerns should match Jesus' concerns in the Gospels. But I think the Beatitudes are important for a final reason. And I want to end with Jesus. You see, Luke wants us to see that ultimately, these Beatitudes are all true of Jesus. At the end of his life, Jesus will be impoverished again when he is stripped naked of all of his earthly possessions and nailed to a cross. He will have nothing on that cross. On the cross, he will experience hunger and thirst. On the cross, he will be hated by those who pass by. He will be excluded. He will be insulted. And ultimately, he will be rejected, but not by God. God looks at him and sees his son and says, this is the coming kingdom. Jesus comes to embody all the Beatitudes in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. And there's one way of looking at Jesus and what happens to him and saying, he was forsaken. Don't ever do what that guy does. Don't orient your life that way, lest that happen to you. And there's another way of looking at what happens to Jesus and saying, this is the way that God saves. It's completely different than we would expect. Jesus dies and is buried and three days later is raised again. And what Jesus and Luke want us to see in the Beatitudes is that if we re reject the way of life in the Beatitudes, we will ultimately come to reject Jesus too because he, be he will be that person in our midst, the poor, the hungry, and the oppressed, and the captivated. And we'll, we'll remove ourselves and say, I don't want anything to do with you. And so Luke wants us to grasp as Jesus' disciples just how central this is to our life together because it's the life that Jesus lived as well, and it's the life that he calls us to live in light of his coming kingdom. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.